0: Real estate investment is your job. You should, I expect you to make more money from your job versus sitting on the couch and collecting a check from this passive investment. You should expect that. So it shouldn't be too surprising kind of what we're seeing in the DST space in terms of capital rates compressing, you're watching cash on cash go down. Well, yeah, of course it is because we don't have the same kind of variety of assets we have across all of real estate. And frankly, you're sitting on your couch, not doing anything. And that's, this is gonna kind of be what you need to expect in terms of, in terms of returns.
1: What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today our guest is Brandon Bruckman. Today we are talking about the 1031 exchange and options for investors moving from active real estate investing strategy to a more passive real estate investing strategy. We talk about the structures that investors use when they're going from, say, if you own a, a piece of property now and you're managing it yourself and you want to sell an exchange and defer your capital gains taxes, but you want to get into a more passive investment strategy, we talk about how you can do that, how you might invest the different structures that are available for you to use and all of that great stuff. We talk about what the 1031 exchange is. If you don't know what it is, you're gonna find out today. It's a great uh, tax strategy, great tax tool out there for real estate investors. And we talk about the potential future of the 1031 exchange uh, from a political standpoint. We don't get too political, but hey, it's tax policy, it's reality. Uh, Politicians drive it and we get into what the future of the 1031 exchange may look like and where Brandon stands on what could happen, I suppose, is how I'll put it. I had a nice long conversation with Brandon uh, both before and after we recorded. So if you're somebody out there and uh, you listen to this episode, you think you want to reach out to him do it. He's a super nice guy. He and I talked for quite a while and you're going to have a great conversation with him. And you're going to listen to a great conversation here today and you're going to learn a few things about the 1031 exchange. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Vote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. We love learning new things. We've talked about the 1031 exchange on the show before. And every time I talk to one of these uh, 1031 exchange experts, I learn so many new things, just like you are going to today. At least I hope so. That's what we're trying. Thank you for tuning in once again. Without any further ado, here we go with Brandon Bruckman. Brandon, thank you for joining us today.
0: Uh, thank you for having me, Taylor.
1: Great getting to know you a bit here before we hit record. And uh, I think the listeners are going to have a great time listening today. For those out there who don't know about you and what you do, can you tell
0: us a bit about your background and your business before we dive into yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll go backwards and forwards. So um, myself and my, my partner, um, we form Insight Investment Advisors, and Insight Real Estate Partners. Um, we have an investment side of the book. We won't talk about that today, but very traditional. And that's sort of my background is in traditional investing and investment management. So we definitely do that. That's a key part of what we do. But I think for today, we're going to talk a lot about what we do and help folks on the real estate side. So we spend the vast majority of our time with real estate investors. They're typically looking to retire from active management, but are looking for a passive solution. And they really need to use 1031 Exchange to defer that tax and to get into a passive solution. So we'll take them anywhere from a Delaware Statutory Trust. And we can spend a little time explaining that today. We'll take them to private syndication deals as well. um, If we can structure those in the right manner, Um, there's oil and mineral rights. Um, So there's a variety of things that fit into that 1031 exchange. and It's all about finding sort of those investments and portfolio that fits for that particular investor. getting them in that, getting them passive and picking up the proverbial golden mailbox money that we all like to talk about.
1: Nice, I dig it, and I don't want to assume too much about uh, what folks know out there. I want to, I do want to get into the details about all the things we're going to talk about today. But just in case somebody's listening and they don't know what a ten thirty one exchange is, can you just give us like the high level overview of what why a ten thirty one exchange is important or potentially a good idea for somebody investing in real estate?
0: Yeah, ten thirty one exchange is sort of the thing that man, there wasn't a book in school that told us that real estate investing was this cool and had all these advantages. And the 1031 exchange is probably the advantage that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is, this is true and this actually happened. So in a 1031 exchange, what, what the government in essence allows us to do is exchange one property for another. It's as easy as thinking about that in that way and there's more complicated rules behind it, but we do that in order to defer the tax liability we would have on selling that property. And it's more than just thinking about calculating your tax liability on a federal level. You have to think about that on a state level. And then you start to think about something called depreciation recapture as well. So you start adding some of these extra fees up along with that tax bill. And you're like, oh my gosh, we've seen tax bills up to 40, even even 50% of the property value people owe in tax. And they're like, my gosh, I can't believe this is the case. And it's one of the reasons we actually got started as a firm. This happened um, to my partner and his family, is that they're sort of blindsided by this when they went to sell their property and see their CPA. It was very impactful for their, for their life. They chose not to sell when they saw this bill, right? So we've been kind of searching for a solution for this. So that's what the 1031 exchange is, is when done right, it allows us to defer that 30, 40, 50% tax bill and r- simply roll into that, that next property. And sort of the beauty of this is if you continue investing, buying, and selling you can do what um, some investors refer to the strategy, and it's a little crude, but swap to you drop. You can do that and continue to re- defer taxes until, until you die, and you look to pass it on to heirs. And then there's a process there that you can still do called stepping up of your basis. You can, in essence, eliminate a lot, those, a lot of those gains. So what a tremendous tool to have if you think about comparing sort of real estate investing on a tax base after tax basis to some other traditional investments. Mm-hmm. You're picking up yield here that you you're just not going to get because you just can't defer tax when you're selling stock, right? You just it's not possible. But it is here in real estate. So to look at that and then to think about the return pattern that's associated with it, it's it's a really powerful tool.
1: Absolutely, and you know, it's uh, you make a great point that it's one of those things that you know we weren't handed a book in school about why you know real estate can make a, a really great investment and have some uh, great treatment. But anytime we have Any kind of investment, you mentioned stocks, anything like that, and we're selling, we always, I think we need to think about what we're repositioning into, right? If we sell and we just hold the cash, okay, now I have cash and I'm getting hit by inflation. My purchasing power is getting hit by inflation. If you're doing a 1031 exchange, you need to get into something else. Uh, like a Delaware statutory trust or tenant in common, or just buy a new property. You mentioned all of those things kind of more at the beginning. Can you like let's walk us through those and talk about some of the you know pros and cons?
0: I suppose it's such a big thing to, to comment on that. To to think about is, I think a lot of folks are sitting on highly appreciated real estate right now, and it looks really attractive at at some of these valuation levels we're seeing. To say, man, I really want to sell this, but to your point. You got to have to think about what you're going to do next, because if you do want to defer, if you want to defer tax, you're going to have to buy something else. And real estate is real estate is real estate, despite whatever sort of terminology we use to kind of fit around it, be it private deals or syndication or dollar accessory trust, whatever we put around it is still real estate. You're still transacting in this market. So it's so key to sort of think about before you even get started in this process, the most successful people we see going through a 1031 exchange are the ones who are thinking about that holistic outcome before they even start to think about selling, they're thinking already about what's my next move that I'm going to make. Right. And they already have that sort of plotted out. So when we're going through the 1031 exchange, let me kind of lay out some of those options that folks can go through. Obviously, if you're selling a building, you're managing right now, or investment property you're managing right now, you can simply purchase in our investment property. You can totally do that. That's a very clean way. I think most exchanges do go that way. If you're looking at this equation and you're kind of going, yeah, maybe I don't like the things that are in my backyard, right? Maybe I want to look outside of different markets. It may be wise if you're in a position to start to look at syndication deals. And there's ways in which those can be structured so that you can participate and still perform a 1031 exchange. That might be something you want to look at. Another route we've watched people go down is say, hey, I don't like the management aspect of this. I might want to look at triple net lease properties. We've seen people do that in that they own... The example I always use is Starbucks. So when they own, that, they own a Starbucks, but a lot of that day-to-day management is sort of eliminated from that equation in that triple net lease structure. That's a route that you can go down. Another route we watch people go down when they really don't want to manage anything and really don't want decision rights, Delaware Statutory Trust is a route we watch a lot of people go down in 1031 exchange. And it becomes a, it becomes a fit in that, again, folks don't want to manage that property. And inside of that vehicle, there is no management. Um, whatsoever that you're doing as the investor. you're you're punting that to a third party to organize, structure the deal, perform the management and to do all the the aspects of that deal. Folks can think of it as it's very similar to a syndication that you have a fractional ownership of a piece of real estate is really what we're talking about in Delaware statutory trust. And there's about there's probably five to six major players that operate in that space as what we refer to as sponsors or managers of the property. Um, And then there's probably another dozen or so that also operate in that space uh, with a few deals here and there. But you're getting professional management, professional properties, um, stabilized properties are in that equation. We're across multiple different asset types in Delaware Statutory Trust. The whole design of the asset is to be very stable and very um, predictable in the way they're producing cash flow. Because frankly, the majority of the people who choose that option. Um, are advancing later in life and they need that stability and income coming in um, to replace what for the majority of them, majority of their wealth has come through active real estate investing. And they're asking for a replacement to that. And that's a good option for dollar statutory trust. So those are sort of some of the things that people can, there's a lot of options for folks to think about. And this sort of the way to sort of think about it is it comes, economics is always a start point for us and anyone that we're talking to about what they want to do for sure. But then we immediately go directly into how this fits you, right, and how these options function and operate, and how that fits your lifestyle, and frankly, the way you view real estate is very important. So those almost become bigger factors than, you know, a couple of basis points here and there. It really becomes to hey, what am I comfortable with, and what what what's a good fit for me. Nice. Okay.
1: Did I answer your question? I feel like I went off on a tangent. No, you went through it. I want to, you know, ask some follow ups there. Take it
0: apart. Take it apart.
1: So, the Delaware Statutory Trust, uh, for one, I bring that up because to my recollection, I don't think we've discussed that on the show before, for one. And number two, there was a, as we're recording, there was a topic on bigger pockets recently where someone was looking at Delaware Statutory Trust and they were saying that. The returns on the whole across, you know, all of those handful of primary sponsors and then any of the other DST sponsors they found, the returns stink. And it has something to do with the structure of the DST. And, you know, I don't know anything about the DST myself. I haven't done anything related to that. Can you like tell us why that would be why someone going through a 1031 maybe wouldn't want to do a DST and would want to do, you know, one of these other options?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think there's when we talk about that stinks. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Frankly, um, I I don't particularly think the economics on that are headed in a direction that are better. Um, these prop, what, I mean, what's going on in real estate holistically? I mean, we're watching cap rates get squeezed every day. We're watching prices go up every day. DST functions in that space too. It's not a vehicle that. It's not a thing that exists over here in the corner, functions in this real estate space. And its design is to buy assets that are stabilized. It's like, well, what assets are producing better economics right now in a multifamily space, for example? Well, probably stuff in off-markets so you got to put value add against. Those are not assets that are going to have a predictable cash flow that the investor class that typically invests in, in DST wants to see. It's just not there. That's that's not what they want, right? those investors are hap- happy to give up 100 or 150 basis points for stability. And that's the way that those things are underwritten. And that's the kind of asset you have in there, Class A properties and Class A markets. So I mean, what's happening with Class A properties and Class A markets? Pretty obvious what's going on, right? And so that's sort of the function of what, what we're seeing there, right? So it's kind of a misnomer to think like, it's, it's a function of the vehicle. Because when we look at the vehicle, and we look at returns over the past 20 years, Um, some of the bigger sponsors, what we've seen is returns that average over 8% annually. Um, and and that's not great, but man, it's not too bad either when we compare it across. And I think the other aspect we have to think about this too, is it's, and this is something I actually struggle with real estate investors a little bit. There is a time for value equation here too. And I hear a lot from this, from like the flipper community, like, look at how much money I made doing this burr. It's like, well, yeah, but how much time did you spend doing that? like real estate investment is your job. You should, I expect you to make more money from your job versus sitting on the couch and collecting a check from this passive investment. You should expect that. So it shouldn't be too surprising kind of what we're seeing in the DST space um, in terms of capital rates compressing. You're watching cash on cash go down. Well, yeah, of course it is because we don't have the same kind of variety of assets we have across all of real estate. And frankly, you're sitting in your couch, not doing anything. And that's this is going to kind of be what you need to expect in terms of in terms of returns. So if someone's making the decision like, "Hey, do I want to buy the next apartment complex or do I want to do a DST?" It's like, well, you probably want to go direct if you want economics, and you probably want to go passive if you don't want to do the work.
1: Hmm. Okay, interesting. And then another one that came up is the tenant in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you kind of explain uh, that kind of arrangement for us and what that looks like for? the uh, 1031 exchange investor.
0: Yeah, I think, I think the tenant and comment is very interesting. So I, I do think there is a variety of folks that um, are looking at the DST space and saying, yeah, maybe the returns aren't great as they were half a decade ago, but also I want a little more variety than I'm getting there. So I think tenant and comment becomes an interesting option for the investor and the syndicators to sort of start to think about, like, how do I structure a deal that way? And we need the tenant in common structure because in the 1031 exchange for those investors, they have to own the property. And it's kind of a weird thing that I say, like, well, how do they do that in this Delaware statutory trust thing? In the eyes of the IRS, they are property owners of that investment, even though it sits inside of this trust. So I think a lot of people, when just to step back in the DST a little bit, I think a lot of people look at it and they go, oh, that's a REIT. Mm-mm. No, it's not a REIT. Because one, you know exactly what you own. There's no blind pools. And two, the IRS looks at that investment like you own it. You own that property, even though you're not managing it. They look at it like you own it. So we need to kind of do the same thing in the tenant and common structure. And tenant in common was actually a precursor to DST. But there are some limitations to what we can do in the tenant and common space. We can only have up to 30 investors in there. And the biggest difference between the tenant in common and say a DST is the recourse of the debt. So debt can be recoursed in the tenant and common structure. So if I'm signing up for that, I got to sign up for, typically I have to sign up for the debt too. In DST, that's not the case. No debt is recourse to investor, which is kind of appealing. But in the tenant and common structure, I've opened up this world a little bit into what I can invest in, right? If I want to invest in you know, value-add multifamily in an off market, I can do that in the tenant and common structure. The world is wide open to me, whereas the world is a little bit more condensed in, in DST. Ten in common too. I've got to find. I have decision rights there as well, and so I think one of the things that historically ten in common investors have struggled with is like try to get ten people in a room and agree upon something. It's pretty tough, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So that's that's kind of the kind of the, some of the reasons we've gone to. I think the industry is for around ten thirty one actually it's shifted to DST. It's so much easier to transact it. The in and out of transacting that is very easy. The availability is easier too. Someone comes to me with money and say, hey, I need to close on this in in three days. I can do that in DST land. I very much struggle with that in tick. We got to spend a lot more time figuring out how to build an agreement, get comfortable with each other, the property to do a tick. I need more time to do that. So it's harder for us to transact in that, especially if you think about, we can talk about some of the timelines of 1031 exchange, it gets a little tougher. But I think there's just a bigger world of assets for us to think about in in the tick world. And we've been doing our best job, just really encourage folks like you, Taylor, in the syndication space to really start thinking a little bit more about the 10th or one investor and how we can make that transaction easier and a little bit more seamless. Because we do think there's, as we keep going in this direction, I mean, does anyone really think cap rates are going to widen out in the next you know six to 12 months? Probably not with the monetary policy we have. So we got to look for some more aggressive deals so we can find some yield. And this can be a great way to do it.
1: You know, you mentioned a a few super important things in there. I want to follow up on the maximum of 30 investors. Um, So how is that seen if, uh, say, a tenant in common interest with a syndication where the syndication itself might have, well, almost certainly have more than 30 investors, Mm -hmm. tenant in common might just be, you know, one person selling their property or doing a 1031 and trying to do a tenant in common interest with the syndication how does that 30, how is that calculated? Is the syndication itself like one investor? Okay, so you've held up your one. So so, okay?
0: Well, for for a live YouTuber, this is one. Yeah, so think about that as one. It's it's almost like in, and we've watched some syndicators do this where they take the deal and they go and slice it in half, right? Or a third or whatever way they slice it. And they put the GPLP structure over here and they put our tenant and common friends over there. And the tenant and common would sit on top and would be like a direct investor, like, like the general partner. So we're counting on that level of how many people can be in there. Um, we think these, and the way we've been, we, the way we've been doing these, and, and I feel like we're still, still sort of in our infancy with it, is we've been getting investors that are very sophisticated, they've been through this space before, and they've got a good size amount of capital that they want to put in the deal, and I want them to be the only person in it. Really, I want someone to sit down, us, with the investor and with someone, like, with someone like you, Taylor, and say, okay, here's what we're looking for. Can we go out and acquire something like this? Taylor, let you and your team manage it, right? Maybe we even offer decision rights as well. We want to get really passive and we work out a deal that way. And we have one investor in that, that tick and one investor that you really have to worry about from your perspective. And that way it's very much more clean and seamless into who's investing in that deal and, and who you're partnered with.
1: So that takes a uh considerable amount of trust, right? And any of the, there's, you know, any of the deals that I passively invested in or that I've actively done myself, you know, I expect sponsors that I invest with to bring some of their own capital to the table. So, you know, is that part of the agreement too, where your, you know, your 1031 exchange client will say, okay, I'm going to bring a million. I expect the, you know, general partner to bring a couple hundred or how does that typically shape out?
0: Most of the deals we've done have been 80-20 investor capital, okay. 20% had been sponsor capital coming in on the front. Yeah, we love that too, because then there's no question about where interests are, right? I stand next to you, you stand next to me, and we, we do a great job on this property. Love it when it's structured that way. So we would, we would definitely prefer that. And then it's, it's really varied from a structure perspective on what we've seen. We've watched um, We've watched some sponsors offer that at sort of no promote fee on a monthly basis, right? They're standing side by side and then they really want to talk about promote on disposition. That's an interesting structure. I and I'm not against, and I'm not against sort of the maybe the common we've seen the the 6% preferred 80 20 split on top. Like I'm not against that either. Um, I, I think this really comes down to the word you said was trust, Taylor. And I think that's that's spot on is that we have to get we have to get a good it's matchmaking from my seat. So I'm looking for investors that fit well with what you may like to do as a sponsor and your track record and your history. And frankly, even like, I sort of feel like I'm playing like, like date match here a little bit, right? Like there's a, there's a good personality fit between the two. That's where we think things work really well is when we see a really tight personality fit between um, the sponsor and the investor. It, it just becomes an easy way to do, to just kind of do the deal. But yeah, we got to build some trust up front big time.
1: You say, okay, so you're the Tinder of the 1031 exchange.
0: Oh No, no, <laughs> you found a tagline for this podcast.
1: <laughs> no, can. You can do better. Than that. Yikes. So, you know, before we move on to the next segment here, I think we'd be remiss, right? I, I hate talking about politics because it's everywhere, right? But I want to remain to the facts. The incoming administration has made it clear. They're not really a fan of the 1031 exchange and, you know, this, there's going to be some time between when we record and when the podcast goes live, as we talk, you know, nothing's happened. He's not inaugurated yet, but I'm assuming that's going to happen. So for the, you know, for your expectations of, you know, the future of the 1031 exchange from a policy standpoint, do you see it going away? And, you know, hypothetically, if it does, like what, you know, what do these clients do? What do you see as uh, other options?
0: Yeah. And and it's, it's concerning enough for us to think about it. And we have been thinking about over the past six months, the way that if, if we were betting people, the way we would view it is it's not going away. There's a lot of good lobbying going on behind the scenes um, that we've been observers to not a part of on an individual Senator by Senator basis, specifically with democratic senators. Um, That's been very positive outcomes we've seen from, from that lobbying about how important 1031 exchange is to, the average investor, but also how important it is to, and i remiss not to mention this, how important it is to the farmer. Um, it is an aspect that farmers and folks with farmland can use and perform in 1031 Exchange. We have a few as, as clients. We'd love to grow in that area. Um, but these aren't people that are multimillionaire billionaires. Um, if you've ever looked at a farm p you'll be very disappointed about the way they've not made money or the past seven years concerning commodity prices. That is a very tough business. To live in. So to remove 1031 exchange for across the board and for, for those folks would be very detrimental. And I think the lobbying has done a good job of, of shining a light on that. Um, so I'm encouraged that, that we're going to, that's going to remain. I'm, I'm more concerned about the step up in basis upon death. I think that's definitely in the crosshairs and that would be, that would be very detrimental to um, a variety of us, obviously, even outside 1031 exchange would be, would be kind of a mess. So that I'm a little bit more worried about if it does go away. um, There are other options. Um, There's installment sales. um, And that's much more complicated process that we've started to look at. There are things called a deferred sales trust, which we haven't gotten hundred percent comfortable with. Um, But, but those are options. So there will be things that we can do, but I think what you're going to watch people do is they're going to say, Hey, I don't want to sell. If ten thirty one exchange goes away, and you're going to see a lot more cash out refis to get to get some liquidity in that way, um, so it's going to be bad all the way around if it gets removed. I just don't see a high probability of that happening.
1: Okay, interesting. I appreciate that uh, that comment, mm-hmm. and you know, I think the, the you know the tax bill is still due when you do a ten thirty one exchange. You're just kicking the can down the road so you can continue to hopefully compound on that money without paying the tax bill now you pay it later but that step up in basis at the very end when you uh you know do it and when once you finally drop that is when the you know if you're looking at the if the federal government's looking at okay are we going to get funds now or later well if we say the step up in basis is still there it's going to go away that's when it goes from you know A million dollars being owed to zero dollars being owed, or something
0: like that. So it's so funny. I have this like when you describe that, I have this like picture in my mind of you like picking up coins and right and bringing them to the pot of gold, and then like Biden taking the pot away. You are like, (laughs) what? what happened? Like, where did it go? Right, and that's sort of what I think about when I think about the basis going away. It's like we've done all this good work to do. Probably in some cases for folks doing multiple ten thirty one exchanges to defer this and defer it's Good word you said, defer not eliminate to defer this tax bill and then all of a sudden, you know, you're gonna stick junior with it. You say sorry about that. You're gonna owe a little tax on that. That's kind of and yeah, that that one, that one seems tough. I haven't heard a lot of good things about um, efforts there, but I'm I'm much further away from that. So hopefully um, hopefully good efforts there as well on the lobbying front. Okay.
1: Well we've talked about deferred sales trust in the in the past on this show. So folks can dig that up and learn more about uh, the Deferred Sales Trust, the other kind of DST. Uh, But right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Brandon, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm probably not, but we'll try it anyways. (laughs) I'm sure you are. (laughs) First one, what's the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Oh, okay. So I got to throw books out of that equation too? Books, coaching programs,
0: college. college you know, all of it. Oh my gosh. Okay. So the, the first, the first stock I ever bought. So background, right. So I worked at, I have a financial training, a traditional, what I call traditional financial training background. Um, I worked at a hedge fund for about, about half a decade. And so one of the first things I did there was I bought, I bought Ford at like $3 and I think I held it for, for forever. Can't remember when I sold it, but that one worked out pretty well. And I felt pretty proud of myself. I can talk about some of the bad ones too, but that one was that one was pretty damn good. That one worked out pretty well.
1: Nice, nice. I think I, I haven't looked at their stock price in a while, but I'm sure since then they've done a number of splits, right? So I'm I was, gonna guess
0: I'm going to say over three. Okay, okay, nice.
1: <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna hear about the uh, bad ones, or at least one of the bad ones. Now we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is oh the worst
0: investment you ever oh made? My. See, it's so it's so funny, it, and. A lot of this led to sort of the way that we manage money. You now, maybe I'll get a chance to tell a story in a second. But one of the worst investments I made was I bought um, I bought some Fannie Mae in 08. Again, seeing the same hedge fund and listening to the same talk about there's no way they're going to let this let let Fannie go under. That, that can't happen. Blah blah, it'll blah. be fine. So I'm like, okay, fine. Let's let's throw some money at it. Um, and you know, you're sitting around one of these shops and. This is a place that managed, you know, fifteen billion dollars. There's not stupid people here; they're pretty smart to be able to do what they've what they did and what they had done. So I'm like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. I'll I'll buy some of that. And you know, the story there that went into receivership, it actually went into receivership the the morning of my wedding, which was actually really fun. <laughs> Find out you took a big stock in Ouch. the stomach when you're getting married. So, but all of it sort of led us to like. And I started to dig into this a little bit, so I didn't necessarily get upset that I, I've, I had some losses here. It was more like, well, why did this happen? And it was it was more akin to, akin to like, why are these people who I know that are smart making kind of some bad decisions, right? And that sort of informed our investing approach um, that we use today is it makes us more quantitative. It makes us more observers of what happens in the market instead of predictors and prognosticators of what happens, if that makes sense, Right. So I want to understand what is happening right now, not what I guess will happen in the future, because guess what? I don't know. Because the smartest people that I knew that had made millions and millions of dollars, they didn't know either, right? So it kind of led us down this route of saying, we're not that smart and that's okay. We need to build systems around that to make sure we don't lose money. And so that's, that's kind of sort of what we've done. So losses have been actually more informative to me and helpful to me in my, in my career, in my life than, than the winners have by far.
1: Well, that's good. That's good. So I've never, personally, I've never had a stock go into receivership, fortunately. And uh, I, <laughs> I wasn't... look up
0: what that meant.
1: <laughs> so uh, for just to kind of flesh that out a little bit, did that mean your investment went to zero as a
0: shareholder? Yes. Yes. So, so all the equity in essence was eliminated in that company. So not only, not only was it's like, if you could think about the chapter seven bankruptcy, if there's a step beyond that, that would be receivership.
1: <laughs> Ouch. Making the case making for an F- uh... minus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're making the case for for index funds here, but uh, you know, we obviously <laughs> won't get into that. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing?
0: And a few of the few of the items are behind me. So I'm, I've been a big fan of of Ryan Holiday and some of Ryan Holiday's work. And actually, for a, for a book club, and rereading the book "Ego is the Enemy," and I don't think anything's been more of a sort of fork in the road for me on a personal and professional level than than reading through and applying that book has has made like some step level changes in the way I think about how I act and behave, what drives and motivates me. So I'd encourage folks to, to pick that one up if they, they, haven't, they haven't read that before. But that was a huge lesson to sort of shine back on, frankly, on myself to say, hey, like, what are you doing? And where, where are you at? And, and what, is, what is motivating you to do what you do? And, and how are you, frankly, how are you treating people? Right? And so that, was, that wasn't a fun exercise to go through. It kind of felt like personal receivership but it was good. It's good. And it makes, uh, it makes it clear how, how what you do and how you get up from the morning, how you come to service people. And that's the biggest thing that I can tell folks is like, all all I'm looking to do from our seat every single year is just add more value. How do we add more value to people? How do we find better solutions for people? And off of that, everything, everything that we want and need comes for us. So that's, that's been, that's been a big lesson.
1: Nice. I do like Ryan holiday a lot. I, I think his book, uh, the obstacle is the way is probably my favorite that came out at a time when it's a lesson I I really needed. So
0: here it is, right here, the obstacles the way poster. It's maybe hard to see in the background. Take it off the wall, but yeah, there it is. It's like a it's like a battlefield going across here, and yeah, right at the bottom, obstacles away. My wonderful wife framed that up for me one year. Um, it was, it's awesome, absolutely awesome. It's just put that one on your wall, Taylor. Oh man, I'm gonna have to. This is a green screen, but i have to put it on my real wall. That's not your house? <laughs> no,
1: it's not. It's also not light out right, uh, outside right now. But, so. <laughs> well, Brandon, thank you for joining us today and sharing these lessons with us. If folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more, they want to talk ten thirty ones, whatever, where can they find you?
0: A um, couple of places. Um, very active on LinkedIn. Just type Brandon Bruckman in there. You'll find me. Um, or shoot me a note. Brandon at insight1031.com.
1: Great, well, thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. We are now live streaming interviews on YouTube. So if you would like to join us while we live stream, join the conversation, just look up Passive Wealth Strategy Show on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell and all that other stuff that the talking heads on YouTube like to say. And uh, we look forward to seeing you there live. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we will talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.